0: Let's pray another time. Father dear, speak to our hearts. May the interpretation of your word be inspired today by the same Holy Spirit that inspired it then. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about Joshua. Joshua is one of my favorite Bible characters. Um, The first time in the Bible that you're introduced to Joshua, you see him in battle against the Amalekites. One day he is told to assemble an army and prepare for war, and the next day he's a general leading troops into battle. Not a long time for preparation. And as long as Moses can keep his arms raised in prayer, the battle goes in favor of Joshua and Israel. <clears throat> and of course, they're finally victorious. The Bible says that they discomfit the Amalekites. It'd be interesting to know certainly what discomfort means, but it means that Israel won. The second time you meet him in Scripture is when he goes up into Mount Sinai with Moses to receive the law of God. Joshua spends 40 days alone in solemn prayer and fasting on the mountain with Moses. He's alone with his thoughts in the presence of God. And with quiet confidence he waits. His unshakable faith will not allow him to break under the strain and retreat to the foot of the mountain where even now those with considerably less moral strength have forsaken the wait and are even now worshiping a golden, a golden calf. This morning we're going to study the third time that you meet Joshua in Scripture. The incident is found in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. And before I tell you the story, I've got a question to ask you. It's this. How long does it take to take a 12-day journey. And that's not a trick question. I was watching a a flick on some place on my iPad the other day, I don't remember where it was, and uh, this man was walking around on a college campus and he would stop students on the campus and ask them questions. One of the questions he asked was, If your speedometer is set at 85 miles an hour, how far will you travel in an hour? And only half of the people knew. And I thought to myself, wow. But this is not a trick question. This is not a trick question. Um, How long does it take to take a 12 day journey? Listen to my favorite author in a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. This author says, A distance of only 11 days' journey lay between Sinai and Kadesh on the borders of Canaan. And it was with the prospect of speedily entering the goodly land that the hosts of Israel resumed their march when the cloud at last gave the signal for an onward movement. You see? Only 11 more days. Then they're at Kadesh. Then one more day to cross over into the promised land. A 12-day journey. But how long does it take to make a 12-day journey? Watch this. This author says again, 11 days after leaving Mount Horeb, the Hebrew host encamped at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, which was not far from the borders of the promised land. See, only one more day left in this 12-day trip. They can camp here at Kadesh tonight and rest, and tomorrow they can enter the promised land. It's been a long time getting there, but it's only taken 11 days, and now one more day, and they can enter. In less than two years after leaving Egypt, with nearly a year of that time spent at sinai they can be in the land of promise the land that flows with milk and honey but how long does it take to make a 12-day trip listen one more time to my favorite author 11 days after leaving mount horeb the hebrew host encamped at Kadesh in the wilderness of paran which was not far from the border of the promised land And here it was proposed by the people that spies be set up to survey the country. How long indeed? How long indeed? They're going to spend 40 days spying out the land and the 12-day trek is now extended to at least 51 days. 11 days for traveling and 40 days for sightseeing in the promised land. And that's the story of Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. So let's take a look at it. They come up to the very border of Canaan. Nothing is is preventing them from actually going in and possessing the land. Only one thing before they can go in. They want, quote unquote, to spy out the land. And you have to wonder, don't you, what exactly is it that they're looking for? God had already told them that it was a good land, a fair land, a beautiful land, a country flowing with milk and honey. But they want to spy it out. And so Moses is instructed to choose 12 men as spies, one of the rulers from each of the 12 tribes. And these 12 are told to go throughout the length and breadth of the land and to determine what kind of people are living there. What are their cities like? What's the condition of the soil? And for good measure, they are to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And when they come back, they have with them some figs, some pomegranates, a bunch of grapes, trick with the grapes is that this bunch of grapes is so large that it takes two men to carry it on a pole between them and for your information the Bible says that it was quote unquote a single cluster of grapes and then they give their report verse 27 surely it's a land which flows with milk and honey and that ought to be obvious by the size of the fruit I mean, how would you who are gardeners, I'm not a gardener, but there are some around I know. How would you who are gardeners like to have land that would produce a bunch of grapes, just one single cluster, that it would take two men to carry? You could feed your whole family on one potato and two carrots. (laughs) And imagine uh, imagine the jack-o'-lantern that you could make from a pumpkin grown in that soil. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be a scary thought, I think. But they also report that the cities are great, the cities are walled, and the people are strong. But Joshua isn't impressed. In verse 30 he says, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome. And all this does is make the other spies angry. Caleb, didn't you hear what we said? The people are stronger than we are. The sons of Anak are giants, and we're just grasshoppers in comparison. And besides that, the land, quote unquote, eats up the inhabitants. And by now, the ten have influenced the whole camp. Would to God that we had died in Egypt, they say. Or would to God that we had died in the wilderness. Why did God bring us out here to die? Let's choose a leader who will take us back to Egypt. We want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. And and of the two plus million, only Caleb and Joshua come to the defense of God. The land is good, they say. And the Lord brought us here to possess it. The Lord is with us. He's not with them. They are bread for us, and the Lord will give us the land. Don't be afraid. What are you worried about? And notice that they don't argue with the report given by the other ten. The cities are walled, and the cities are great. But that's not really the point at all, is it? The point is, that God is true to his word or he isn't. Will God do what he says or won't he? Joshua and Caleb say, God will unconditionally fulfill his word. He will give us the land. All we need to do is go in. You can trust what God says to be true. The other ten say, no, 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 no. The Circumstances will not allow him to do it any longer. God hasn't taken into consideration the size of the cities. He hasn't taken into consideration the heights of the walls or the size and strength of the people who are giants. But Joshua and Caleb disagree. And by now the people are so influenced by the evil report of the other ten that they want to stone Caleb and Joshua to death. And the only thing that saves them from being stoned is that the Lord makes a wonderful, glorious appearance in the tabernacle. You read that in chapter 14, verse 10. And God's response to the whole thing is that he proposes to spite the whole nation and start all over again with Moses and Caleb and Joshua. And if it weren't for the fact, that Moses intercedes in behalf of Israel, that's exactly what would have happened. But they must still be punished for their rebellion. They must still be punished for their rebellion. Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness Because they've tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land of promise which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me ever see it. Verse 28 Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. You wanted to go back to Egypt. You wanted to die out in the wilderness. Okay, let's make it happen. All that are numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 25 years old and upward, which have murmured against me, you'll never see the promised land. Verse 34. After the number of the days in which you searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. Let me ask you one more time. How long does it take to make a 12-day journey? Which causes me to suggest that there are some lessons we need to learn from this event. Let me share a couple of them with you. Lesson number one. The whole story is first and foremost, an object lesson on faith, which suggests then that we ought to know what faith is. So what is faith? The answer is, faith is trusting God, believing him, taking him at his word, and that's pretty much the whole issue in this story. If the story says anything, it says that we must exercise faith in spite of the situation and in spite of the circumstances. That's a peculiar problem, by the way, to the modern mind that is technically oriented and has to prove everything scientifically. But it was also a problem back there. Notice that God calls the report of the 10 an evil report. My question is, why is it evil, that report? Is it evil because it's not true? The answer is no, it is true. The cities were large, and they were walled, and the men were strong. Some of them even were giants. The report was evil because it was not of faith. It is akin to the sin of Adam and Eve. So I ask you, what was the sin of Adam and Eve? The inspired lady says that the sin of Adam and Eve was quote unquote not that they believed a serpent but that they didn't believe God. And it's the same thing here. The sin of Israel is not that they believed the report of the ten spies but that they didn't believe the report of the two. Caleb and Joshua's report was a report of faith and needed to be believed. And here's where We probably need to quote Romans 14, verse 23. He that doubteth is condemned, for whatever is not of faith is sin. The Adventist far right has reduced sin to a system of acts. If you do this, you commit sin. If you do that, you commit sin. But that's only half of it or less. If you don't believe God or if you fail to act from faith, you also sin for whatever is not of faith is sin. And that which made it even more sinful for Israel is that they doubted and disbelieved smack in the face of all of the miracles performed in Egypt in the wilderness. They knew about God They knew his power. They knew what he could do. They knew that what he said he actually would accomplish. And they doubted and believed, smack in the face of all of that. Numbers chapter 14, verse 11 says, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Then in verse 22... Because all these men have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor will any of those who reject me ever see it. If God could miraculously deliver them from Egypt, If he could miraculously sustain them in the wilderness, could he not miraculously give them Canaan in spite of the size of the cities and the size of the men? Faith shrinks cities. Faith makes grasshoppers out of giants. We can go in. We can possess the land. God has given it to us. What he says he will do. Let's not stay out here any longer. Let's not linger on the border. The thing that is really perplexing is that the Canaanites, the people on the other side, they already believed that they were going to be taken. They believed that God would give them to Israel. And yet, Israel wavered because there were people over there that were strong. And if the story says anything else about faith, says that we must exercise faith in spite of the odds, in spite of peer peer pressure. Peer pressure is where the rub comes in. When you're one-on-one, you can maybe pretty well hold your ground. But as the odds go up, the pressure increases. If we're one one in five, or one in ten, it's a little more difficult, but we probably can hold our fort when it's one in 20, the pressure becomes nearly unbearable. One in 40, the pressure is insurmountable. But what must it be to be one in a million like Joshua and Caleb? Is our faith such that we can endure that kind of pressure? One in a million. There were two million Israelites, Joshua and Caleb, one in a million lesson number two the story speaks clearly about the effects of sin and it says that the effects of sin are very far reaching not just the ten are involved they have influenced the whole camp by their murmuring by their complaining and now all of Israel is clamoring for the blood of Joshua and Caleb let's do away with them let's take them out which says we do not live in a vacuum. No man is an island. Our influence is far more widespread than we can ever imagine. What we do do affects not only the multitudes, but others as well. The story teaches that sin is devastating. Whatever is not a faith is sin. The wages of sin is death. The lack of faith demonstrated here. The unbelief shown here says that the ten spies were lost their lives immediately, but that's the nature of sin. It defiles and destroys those who are guilty. But in this case, it also affected the innocent. Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua now have to tramp around the desert for another 40 years. They don't deserve that. And neither do those under 20 years of age who must now eat sand for 40 more years. They are cheated of 40 years of milk and honey and king-sized fruit. They have to go and stand and contend with snakes and enemies, all because someone else indulged. I suspect, I suspect that we'll never fully know How many innocent people have suffered for how many years because someone lacked faith and indulged in sin? The Bible says that the children to the third and fourth generation suffer the results of the sins of their parents. And I would also suspect that we will never know how many children may be lost because of parents who stayed outside and murmured and complained and look for someone else to lead them back to Egypt now we're going to close now we're going to close and I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 3 beginning with verse 14 Hebrews chapter 3 beginning with verse 14 for we have become partakers of Christ If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard, rebelled? Indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his, into his rest, but those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Now let's make the spiritual application. What would it be? The journey to Canaan is the life that we now live. It is our journey to the kingdom of God. Canaan is the heavenly kingdom. The goal which we'll at one point reach. Canaan rest is the bliss of heaven. Israel is spiritual Israel, the church. Those who fall in the wilderness, those who do not make it to the kingdom. And why don't they make it? Why don't they go in? And so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that's the spiritual application. That's the application that we must make for ourselves. If we do not make it, it will be for the same reason. If we are lost, it will not because we have believed the devil, but because we did not believe God. Father bless us as we learn these lessons. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Keep our faith to the end until Jesus comes.